is the last time you played? Huh. So I would have to say the last time I played was last Thursday during a dance lesson with my um, ballroom dance teacher, Nadari. Ooh. Because, yeah, because dance for me is just total bliss and joy. Although the way I approach dance, there's also quite a lot of what I call rigor to it as well. But we'll probably get into this, but play, does, there, there's like a nice counterpoint in play, I think, um, where rigor comes into play. No pun intended. But um, <laughs> yeah, I have to like just, just uh, last, last week. Welcome to Lead with a Dash of Play. Here we talk about the how and why of reclaiming playfulness as adults in order to build more connected, innovative, and human-centered workspaces. Isn't that what leadership is all about? I'm your host, Mary Hendra. Let's play. Natalie Nixon and I spoke the week after the Super Bowl. Natalie is known for being a creativity strategist, keynote speaker, and author of The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work. I love that she started by talking about dance. One of the play personalities Dr. Stuart Brown identifies in his book on play is the kinesthete. And while that may remind us of professional athletes, it is just as much for those of us who simply feel a need to wiggle sometimes. Have you ever taken a walk when you're struggling to solve a problem? Here's our conversation. Natalie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Why is dance in particular such a release and play for you? Oh my goodness. Well, you know, my mother said that when I was an infant in the playpen and she was be nearby exercising to get, you know, her body toned again, et cetera, after, after what a woman goes through after having a baby, yeah. um, I would just be in constant motion next to her. And mm -hmm. the thought occurred to her, maybe she'd like to dance. So she put me to dance lessons when I was four years old, but that discernment that she had. I really am um, a, I'm a kinesthetic learner. Yeah. I love to learn through movement. Um, I have been called at different points in my career, a whirling dervish, which I now <laughs> take as a compliment, but, but, but movement and especially movement to music is just this multi-dimensional expression of of joy and 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 it's a way to connect to others it's a way to express it's 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 good for for me it's good for us i believe to move yeah. to yeah. release i think i think as as humans we're designed to move and dance is just a, a kind of a, a primordial language to um to communicate all sorts of emotions and to allow ourselves our bodies to release. And yeah. that for me, I think is, is those, for those jumble of reasons or why um, dances is like a primary place of play for me. I'd love that. Thank you for sharing that. You brought in rigor 
And I have seen you write about this, uh, especially pairing wonder and rigor. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I developed a framework I called the Wonder Rigor Framework to hopefully my intention has been to make creativity a much more accessible place for everybody because in my view we're hardwired to be creative and I I bristle when I hear people say things like oh I'm not a creative type air quotes yeah. because I can't draw paint paint dance act and what happens is we are conflating creativity with art only and artists only which mm-hmm. I don't think is really fair to artists they're just really spectacular at wrestling with the ambiguity of the creative process and I and the shorthand of all of this is that I I delved into a lot of research. I'm a qualitative researcher. Did a lot of observational studies of 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 some obvious and maybe not so obvious groups of people who I consider to be creative, like you know first responders, dancers, yeah. um, chefs, um, all sorts of people to understand their process. And what I landed on is that they are toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And I really think that's what creativity is. And I think if more of us think about creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems, you quickly realize that the best doctors and accountants and coders and teachers and lawyers are really, and artists, are really super creative when they're intentionally toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. So that's where that framing comes for me. I love the list of professions that you included there. And I think some people might be surprised to hear doctors and first responders on that list because we think, oh, well, the the rigor, yes, and the training and all of that. What is it about needing to pair that rigor with wonder that makes doctors and first responders more effective? Well... I'll go to one of the, I'm a frameworks nerd, another framework, <laughs> developed, <laughs> another framework I developed called the three eyes, because I realized it wasn't enough to tell people, okay, toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. Off you go. You're creative. Like, how do you consistently and sustainably do that? How do you activate that? It's through applying what I call the three eyes, which are improvisation, intuition, and inquiry, and not necessarily in that order. Mm-hmm. But when I think about the work of first responders, and the best physicians, I, I, for example, have a wonderful doctor. Um, she's a she's an integrative functional medicine doctor. There's a ton of improvisation that's going on because mm-hmm. they need the technique and the training. But they but every case that comes before them is totally situational. And right. I, I observe that my doctor, Dr. Daphne Goldberg, she kind of almost is a, a detective. It's all in the questions mm. that she's asking. She's trying to understand the context of my life. She's trying to understand if this, then that, and oh, that, that, that doesn't, that's not typically what we hear or, or find. And then, but it's, but it's very contextualized. And when you think about first responders, they, in that moment, have to respond. So they have their training, they have their tools, their equipment, and they have the unique person, individual in front of them who's in harm's harm's way, and they have to improvise. So improvisation also requires wonder and rigor. And if you think about uh, jazz musicians, a great example of of improvisers, they have the rigor of 
knowing music theory. They practice incessantly. Their compositions have a beginning, a middle, and end. It's 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 to be performed in a certain uh, key. But yeah. the the wonder is are the offerings that they give each other and the interstices between those notes in those moments. You know, my husband is an attorney. I I observe with him. He has his legal training. He is a, is a pretty linear thinking. He's a planner. Yeah. However, what I've observed about the, the, when he shares different situations of, of, of client work with me, the best attorneys can take a, a problem and they're able to look at it from multiple possible angles. So they're just rounding and circling yeah. the problem and asking again different sorts of questions to see what will what will be revealed. So that's why the best doctors and accountants and coders and farmers and teachers etc are super creative because they're the the rigor is our is are the fundamentals, the training, right. the discipline, the time on task, the skill mastery and the wonder is the ability to ask like bigger audacious questions and to sit in awe and to pause because you can't yeah. wonder when you're going 80 miles an hour. You have to slow down. <laughs> you, you have to yeah. I also think of Adam Grant's book, Think Again. Yes. Where he talks about the first responders who, when they were only following their training, um, many actually lost their lives. And the ones who were able to improvise, ask different questions, challenge some of the assumptions from that rigorous training were the ones who made it out alive in a particular fire that had been spreading so quickly. Yeah. And follow their intuition, right? That right. nudge. Yeah. I, you know, and I interviewed over 50 people for a book I wrote called The Creativity Leap. And, you know, as a researcher, you you tend to have a, a, a set of questions because you, because that's kind of like your standard for your experiment. And then you are... Yeah. From that, you can sort and sift the responses and then identify patterns in the responses. But there was always a moment in my interview process where I would ask people, would you please share a story about a time when you have used your intuition to make a strategic decision? And mm -hmm. I remember the moment when I was in front of a gentleman named Biplop Sarkar, who has a PhD in, in electrical engineering, and he's okay. the CEO of a software firm. I thought, oh my gosh, this guy, I, I assumed wrongly. <laughs> he laughing at the room, I thought he's such a linear thinker. He's like, when I bet he he only goes by like the hardcore data on the Excel sheet. Yeah. And I was so wrong. You know, he shared tons of stories and situations where he has integrated the intuitive yeah. nudge. Sometimes I call yeah. intuition brain feelings. I, I I define intuition as pattern recognition along yeah. with the, the quantitative data that's been collected. It's really important. Yeah. Yeah. It is really important. And often uh, I think we, we discount it because we don't yet know all of the reasons or we maybe aren't, haven't been able to identify specifically the, the things that go into that intuition. So I appreciate your naming it as pattern finding, as well as like the nudge that's there for us. Maybe some of the things that are part of our thinking, but not yet in words. Yeah, I wonder, and I, I like I love your more your thoughts is like why don't we trust our intuition more? And is it because we err so much on the side of what's rational, what we consider to be data, and we're not mm -hmm. real comfortable with ambiguity, right? I think these are some yeah. of the 
ideas I've come up with. And I've started hoping that people will just start to extend what they consider the category of data to be, because I, I do think yeah. stories are data. I think that those, those nudges of those, those um, signals that yeah. we perceive as, yeah. as humans in this world, that's data too. Yeah. I also wonder if there's so much coming at us from outside of the messages of what we should do and what's important and what data is valuable or what we should be looking at, that those voices become louder than our inner voice. And it makes it harder for us to hear. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I I think you're right. I think you're onto something. Absolutely. This word of wonder, how do we either create the conditions to experience wonder for ourselves or create wonder? What, what, how do we bring more wonder into our lives? Love that question. I think, number one, we do have to be intentional about it. And we can think about it on the space-time continuum. There are ways we can design the space around us to catalyze wonder and there are ways that we can design time for wonder. So for example, one way to approach designing time for wonder is to take daydream breaks. Um, (laughs) I have written about how I was a mighty daydreamer as a little girl. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of my report cards in elementary school would say things like, (laughs) Natalie's doing fine, but she does tend to daydream a little bit too much. Like my, literally my favorite desk in all classrooms has always been like near the window because I just know <laughs> I'll be able to like turn off of it and you know then yeah. zoom in and and um so so daydream breaks are interesting because you are actually and they this can be 90 seconds I'm not talking about like an hour or like 30 minutes it's like not I would say 90 seconds to five minutes which I think all of us can afford that in our busy days yeah. and you are giving your mind permission to wander. So it's very mm-hmm. different than meditation, right? In meditation, mm-hmm. and I'm not a meditator, so I don't, I don't know a lot about, but the times I have been through a guided meditation, it is always about, you know, um, redirecting your mind, redirecting your mind. And this is like the opposite. It's like allowing, maybe the initial prompt is the cloud in the sky, and you're just watching that drift. And then like, what, what comes to effect? Like, what do you, what does that make you, you start to think about, or it could be an ant crawling on the sidewalk, right? So it's giving your mind permission to wander. And I have noticed that when I come back to the work at hand after a daydream break, I really feel actually much more focused. There's something about the process of allowing your mind to like zoom out in this very broad way that helps us to uh, zoom back in later. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense when we, especially when we think about what it takes to navigate ambiguity, right? That being able to zone out and then come back in gives us a different perspective on the, the issue or challenge we're working through. Absolutely. So that's so that exactly. So that's one way to think about uh, designing time for wonder. We must be intentional about it. You must, yeah. in my view, give yourself permission for these daydream breaks. And I don't 
understand all of the neuroscience of creativity. I'm learning about that. But the little bit I do understand is that so much of the work that we focus on throughout the day is a big load on our frontal neocortex, right? That cognitive process of the brain. We're probably, I've read somewhere, we've only optimized maybe like 30% of the brain. The brain is just magnificent. And it's, it's an organ that requires a lot of nourishment, a lot of rest. And there's so many inner regions of the brain that we're not tapping into when we're only doing work that is sedentary at the laptop. Our yeah. brains are required when we're going for a walk because there's all sorts of balancing work that we're doing in our body. And, and the spinal cord yeah. is actually an extension of the brain. It's an extension of the medulla oblongata. But what I understand about the neuroscience of, of creativity is that when we're doing things like allowing our, our, our mind to wander, we're activating other neurosynapses in different regions of our brain. And so the actual synthesis that's required for great ideas happens when more of the brain is lit, right? The inner regions right. and also that frontal neocortex. So giving yourself permission to do that actually will help to spark the, uh, all sought after innovation, but, but in terms of designing space for wonder, and I think that's different for, for each of us. And you really have to experiment with your environment. And I think we can think of space scaled in different ways. So you can think of space, yeah. like I'm in my home office right now. And for me, the space has to be one of calm for me to be able yeah. to allow my mind to be audacious, right? And there might be certain strategically placed objects or colors that will spark a daydream or or a new idea. But space we can think of along the continuum in terms of going, where in the world can we be spatially to activate wonder? And I'm very fortunate to live in Philly, even though we lost the Super Bowl over the weekend, that's okay. We did we did a great job. Uh, go Eagles, go Birds. But I, Philadelphia is a city that was designed with public wooded space throughout. It, it, Philadelphia's Fairmount Park system is 10x the size of Central Park, for example, for just for people yeah. to have some idea of comparison. So I live in Philadelphia. And I live across the street from a woods. So I can I can like dive into the woods for a quick 10 minute walk, 30 minute walk. Um, so for, for me, nature is a, is, a, is a space that also sparks wonder. Um, so for all of us, it's going to be different and you need to pay attention to where uh, what are the what is the spatial design and environment that allows you to feel this audacity of of, yeah. of spirit and mind so that you can be really incredible in your thinking and be incredible in your thinking because you're always going to have to edit it down because yeah. of constraints of time and money and, and all sorts of other resources. Right. I love that you've given some specific ways that we can think about creating space in time and in our environment that can invite wonder in. Yeah, totally. So I'm curious, when I listen to you talk, and you talked about dancing and nature, wonder, daydreaming, to me, a lot of those are elements of play. 
right? So I'm curious if you embrace that word of play. Oh, yeah. I feel very strongly about play. I, I feel <laughs> that we are not at play enough. And I'll give I'll give a very specific example from my professional past. So there was a chapter in my career, in my life where I was a professor. I was a professor for 16 years. And the first 10 years, I taught the business of fashion. And yeah, the first 10 years, and in the last six years, I, I created and, and launched a strategic design MBA program that I that I in which I taught uh, I taught a couple courses, but it was a really cool experiment, the strategic design MBA, because we were trying to creatively disrupt graduate business education. And it was part of a larger experiment at the university where I taught, where it went from being a university consisting of six colleges to one consisting of three. So that experiment was to break down the silos in academia and have much more multidisciplinary into this disciplinary curriculum. Okay. Well, one of the shifts I had to make as a professor was the way I taught. And mm. I rarely taught Sage on stage because I just wasn't really comfortable with that. And, I, and also, if, if most teachers and professors are honest with you, they teach in the ways that they enjoyed being taught. So we kind of like right. either either we're mimicking like great models or we're perpetrating the fraud, however you want to, <laughs> you want to think about it. And so I, in my early years of being a professor, I taught a lot. I really love seminar style learnings. That, and that's, so that's how, kind of what I tried to mimic. And that's what I knew. Right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I was part of this experiment of, of integrating design thinking into MBA curriculum and space mattered. So the university had invested in and raised a lot of money to, to design a building where the classrooms were super modular. So that was one thing was that was super helpful. Uh, probably if you apply not the Pareto rule, the 80-20 rule, but the 70-30 rule, the way pedagogy was now happening in these strategic design MBA classes was that 30% of the time was lecturing out content from a subject matter expert. And 70% of the time were students at the whiteboard, standing up, talking to each other. So a couple of things shifted. Um, my class, my classes were a lot noisier. There was a lot more laughter. Um, I was not the sole font of knowledge. Yeah. Students were the font of each other. And so that to me was an example of graduate school education that was looking a lot more like the nursery school environment and the kindergarten <laughs> environment in a good way. Right? Yeah. But what but what it was a lot more playful. It was a lot more kinesthetic. It was it was not sedentary. It was yeah. interactive. And so it's my perspective that we absolutely need to integrate more play, more time for play, more space for play in the ways that we work. We need to extend that model that was not the, the majority of cases that we find in higher ed into the workplace because I, and I know you know this, Mary, that a lot of the, the skills that are involved in play are directly correlative to all of the executive functioning leadership skills. When you're really good at play, you have to actively listen. You have to collaborate. You, you get really good at negotiation. Yes. You get really good at being more em empathic. You get really good at Trying to anticipate what's next. You get very good at um at 
uh, asking a better question and the, and the right questions. You yeah. also, and I think this is something that we don't talk enough about when we talk about play. Every one of us as kids, when we, when we like, we're, at, we're in the huddle thinking about who's going to be on whose team, we knew in, implicitly that somebody was going to lose. Like yeah. that was not off the tape. Like you knew, like those were the stakes. Like yeah. you're looking at which team you could be on because one of those teams is going to lose. And so much of our culture, I think, is so bad at losing. And I mm. love going back to the mm. Eagles, but Jalen Hurts, um, he was featured in a Wall Street Journal article uh, feature recently or right after the Super Bowl. And he talked about uh, it's not win, lose, it's win, learn. And I loved that paradigm because when you lose it, there's these huge opportunities for for, for learning. You actually cannot advance and progress until you fail, until you lose. You got to figure out what I do wrong. So when I go back to your earlier question, like when's the last time I played? When I'm with my dance instructor learning trying to fine tune a technique in ballroom, there's so many mistakes I'm making. Fortunately, it's in a really playful environment. And I, I get a charge at knowing that I'm advancing because, okay, that's what I did wrong. Let's try it again. Let let me, let me, let me try not to make that mistake again. Right. But um, that's that, those are the ways I think about it. I love hearing all of that. One of the other things about Natalie is that she is a social impact investor. So before we ended our conversation, I wanted to know how playfulness feeds into her decisions as an investor. I look for audacity. I look for ventures that are audacious enough to think that we will be additive to fill in the blank conversation. We will be additive to fill in the blank sector. So I've been an investor now with a, of a very different sort of co-working space um, uh, th- that's really trying to elevate artists in Philadelphia. It's, it's called Rec Philly, R-E-C Philly. I have yes. invested in um, a local uh, urban farmer uh operation which is trying to reinvent the corner store in Philadelphia and and I think it's really scalable to other cities. I'm an investor with a college friend who did an incredible radical career shift. She had a very impressive career in uh, education and education policy and has become a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. Beautiful. And her her first film, uh, The Young Vote, shout out to the young vote was admitted into the mill valley film festival and it's just it's just mm. a phenomenal film play does require an element of audacity and that is something that i look for in the new ventures that i in which i invest yeah is there anything else that you want people to know about incorporating creativity or play as a leader Mm. I think that if you are a leader, please do not underestimate how much your behavior, your choices are models for the, for your team that are really, whether you underestimate or not, they're looking for that permission to pause, to take a break, yeah. to play from you. And 
I'm a big proponent of starting to run experiments with your teams of really allowing them to pause. And so if it seems too extreme to say, you know, one, one morning a week, no emails from 9am to 12pm, if that that seems too radical, try doing it one morning a month, like tiptoe your way into it, but you've got to stick to it. You've got to incentivize it. You've got to model it because other the, the, the rates of burnout are, are, are way too high. I was reading a recent like 2022 Gallup report that said in terms of stress, 44% of Americans were reporting feeling more stressed the day before. The poll also showed that women from the United States and Canada are showing higher rates of stress mm-hmm. globally. Um, stress leads to burnout. Burnout leads to quiet quitting. Quiet quitting leads to knowledge transfer and knowledge transfer is a cost. So it just doesn't make business sense to not allow and model for your your teams the opportunity to chill out, to step back, to relax and and to play because it, it rejuvenates us. It helps to, as we were talking about earlier, Mary, it it helps to stimulate different neurosynapses in your brain so that you can return to the work at hand much more energized, much more rejuvenated and recharged. Yeah. So, so play, play is a productivity play. Play yeah. will really ultimately help us with productivity. Natalie, how do people stay connected to you or get more inspiration from the work and the research that you've done? Well, thank you for asking. Thank you for having me on your podcast, Mary. If, if they simply go to figure8thinking.com and it's the number eight, so it's F-I-G-U-R-E, the number eight thinking.com. There are a ton of resources on the website linking you to my YouTube channel. There's also a tab under resources called downloads and there's all sorts of fun resources that I have there, including, for example, the Wonder Rigor tip sheet it's 16 nice. ways to amplify wonder and rigor in your life and work. Uh, a free sample chapter from the book, The Creativity Leap. So just check out figure8thinking.com. Perfect. And before we leave today, is there one invitation that you would give people to play at work? I would recommend that we start with the biggest artifact of all of our organizations, which is our meetings, the way we tend to meet. Mm. And just have fun with the way you start a meeting or and or the way you end a meeting. Like think of play as maybe two bookends to the meeting. Yeah. Um, and it could be with a stimulating question. Um, a question that I like to start with is for people to share, what was the first thing you spent your own money on? Oh. And it's, it's so fun because it takes people back to like being, I don't know, nine or 10 years old. And it reveals so much about each other. And my, I, my, just in case you're interested, Mary, the first yeah. thing I spent my own money on was a Donna Summer cassette tape because I love oh. Donna Summer. <laughs> <laughs> and that fits so perfectly with your moving consistently and dancing and wanting it that tracks. music, yeah. right? <laughs> What about you? What's the first thing you spent your own money on? <laughs> Once you asked the question, I was trying to think about what was it? It's a good possibility it was chocolate. 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. But see, it, 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 like, it, it reveals a side of your colleague that you didn't know about. It's, yeah. it's, it's a fun little conversation story, but it's playful. Yeah. Yeah. Very fun. Thank you again. It was such a pleasure having you on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Lead with a Dash of Play podcast. Reza Zaidi and Joanna Stevens created and provided the beautifully playful and reflective music you hear on this podcast. The song is titled Holding Rain. This podcast was created out of curiosity, and I hope you'll share your thoughts and questions with me. Email me at mary at maryhendra.com or join the conversation on LinkedIn, redefining play and reclaiming this leadership skill for its potential to bring authenticity and joy into our professional spaces.